0: All right, so welcome everyone to another episode of Blast from the Past. Today, we're happy to have former Congressman Steve Russell, a Republican from Oklahoma's 5th District, uh, with us today. And we're going to be talking to him about his career before Congress, especially his military service. And after that, we're going to be discussing his tenure in Congress. So thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. All right, so my first question uh, starts right at the beginning of your career, and it's what inspired you to enlist in the Army back in 1985? And are there any Leadership skills there that you learned during your 21-year career that helped you be successful in politics.
1: Well, from the time of my youth, I I wanted to be a soldier. I wanted to fly, but my eyes were bad, uh, you know, so I couldn't do it in the service. Um, but I really enjoyed the infantry, and I uh, I guess no one in my neighborhood was surprised that I became a soldier. You know, watching me grow up as a kid, most of the Adults in my neighborhood were World War II veterans um, and they fascinated me with tales from all their experiences so uh, it was it was really interesting and uh, I, I enjoyed uh, military service a great deal. Uh, it was how I was able to afford to go to college uh, with a Army ROTC scholarship and that was uh, instrumental in me getting an education and uh, then I was able to uh, they, they got their money's worth. I had a four year obligation and it uh, turned into, into 21 years. You know, I'm a veteran of uh, several excursions and I got to see a lot of the world and um, worked with some great people. Uh, being able to work as a member of a team, um, work with uh, every type of ethnicity uh, in our nation, uh, stationed all over the country uh, and even other parts of the world, you you really view America as as much more of a whole rather than its individual parts, and and for that I was very grateful.
0: Thank you. Um, all right, so Armin, you can do your first question. Um. Yeah. So uh, thanks again, Congressman Russell, for doing this. Um, my first question is: How did you tackle your two thousand and eighteen reelection campaign? And is there anything specific that you would have done differently if you'd had the chance to use hindsight versus uh, well, I, um,
1: you know, I've, I've certainly looked at it uh, a lot. I think part of it was the changing demographic of an urban area. Um, it's very rare that capital cities uh, remain conservative, for one, uh, just because of the urban makeup. Uh, but we did have a lot of uh, a lot of support and. I think uh, an off election year is certainly a factor. Uh, in, in the 2020 election, there were 36,000 more Republican votes than in the 2018 election. Just 1,600 of those would have changed the course of my election. Um, it is what it is. Uh, I, I certainly subscribe uh, to uh, any endeavor whether military service or political service is exactly that, it's, it's service to the country. Uh, so when the nation said that it no longer needed my services, uh, I was glad to go home. Uh, three and a half decades of serving my country, um, it was nice to come home. So I, I think I look at the election itself, um, Money was a factor at the close of the race, uh, but as I had mentioned before we started the recording, money is not everything. I had won uh, most of my elections on uh, reduced funds uh, comparatively. Um, in my break-in elections in both the state Senate in Oklahoma and in Congress, uh, I was the underdog and was outspent uh, in those elections. So I never really viewed money as a factor, as the deciding factor, although it helps. Uh, to be able to get the message out. I think there were a number of state issues in my own personal election uh, that really have nothing to do with the federal level, but it shows that the electorate itself, they, they really don't know um, the, the differences between what is state authority and what is federal authority. Um, you know, so factors like uh, local education issues, uh, which we were having at the time Uh, those had a a factor and then you had uh, some uh, different things economically uh, that that were uh, occurring Uh, so those might have been a factor but I don't know that I really would have changed anything I've learned in my own personal faith uh, the 75th psalm says that we should not lift our horn on high neither speak with a stiff neck for promotion does not come from the east or west or the south that comes from the lord he puts down one and he lifts up another uh, whether good or bad or indifferent uh, the office is just that it but it, it's an office and it's an honor to serve so if one individual steps out of it it doesn't mean that the world stops it just means that somebody else is in that in that office with that mantle of responsibility and my value as a as a man and as a person and as a believer uh, was Never in question by an election uh, that was never on the ballot. Thank you. Thank you, Congressman. That was very good.
0: Thank you. So, my second question for you uh, pertains to one of the biggest moments in your military career, for sure. And that is can you tell us a little bit about your role, what you can tell us at least, in the capture of Saddam Hussein, which you recounted in your book, We Got Him?
1: Well, it was, uh, you know, I, we, we never imagined uh, that. As we went into Iraq, that our task force would play a central role in his capture. Um, when we got to Tikrit, Iraq, uh, which was his hometown uh, and his birth village of Oja, was within our area of operations. Uh, what we quickly learned was that he was being harbored and sheltered by his his hometown connections, and and they they formed. Uh, a network of individuals, uh, about a half a dozen families that he had known from his youth uh, in the 1950s, uh, through his political life, through marriage, uh, through long association. And these families uh, were the network of what became the resistance uh, that he formed and and were protecting him. We also learned that they were operating in the area where we were. Uh, So while we never imagined we would play any role in his capture, it became Clear uh, early on that if it were possible to get him and he were in the area of Tikrit, the then yeah, let, let's let's work on that. Let's let's go after that. Uh, no one unit or individual can claim uh, you know sole responsibility for his capture, but we certainly had uh, a, a wonderful participation in that with a, a great uh, number of teams uh, from uh, two particular special operations forces teams, uh, regular units that we worked with in the area. And we got on things very, very quickly. I mean, you go back and I, I look through the um, the uh, recorded uh, news coverage and the um, the Time magazines, all the different things that were going on at the time, and, and they were clearly tracking our hunt accurately. Um, and then we also sensed, certainly after October, that we were closing that ring from a number of big captures. We we thought, okay, all of, all of this network of, uh, of family associates, while they were not really good at protecting, uh, or they they were good at protecting Saddam, but not good at, at protecting themselves. So we thought if we go after that network, like Pokemon, we collect the whole set, mm-hmm. see if we can get next to them and uh, it, it might lead us to Saddam. And that was largely the strategy and it worked. Um. And then it culminated uh, there in December where we got an incredible tips of uh, uh, on key individuals that we had been seeking for five and six months and that rapidly led to uh, to the location where he where he was it wasn't the first time we we nearly got him uh, there were a couple of other raids where we got very very close uh, as you know and it is detailed and in, in, uh, as you mentioned the story uh, in the in the memoir we got him which Simon and Schuster published uh, but it was an incredible honor to not only lead warriors that were participating in that, uh, but to um, whatever the Iraq war became, uh, we knew that this guy was bad news. Uh, we knew after attacking every neighboring country, um, except for Syria, um, killing uh, 300,000 of his uh, countrymen and political opponents, uh, elimination of the Marsh Arabs, uh, 40,000 of his, uh, his own tribal opponents, uh, killed his own son-in-law. Uh, you know, this was not a nice guy. Uh, he, he had been a pariah uh, on, on the world for decades. And if it was not then, it was going to come to account at some point. I still believe that and in retrospect, some people say, well, you know, look at what all happened after. Well, what happened afterwards were independent decisions. And you know, you could say, well, you know, Mussolini, he made the trains run on time. Yes, yes he did, (laughs) but that didn't mean that that was good for Italy. Um, And Saddam was certainly not good for Iraq. I can't imagine him being in play in many of the factors that happened later. So I told my soldiers the last time we were assembled, as a task force. I said, look, whatever becomes of this war and whatever, whatever people decide, uh, whatever the nation decides to do, uh, no one can ever take away what you've accomplished. And as other young men your age, look back on their lives and women, we had uh, 17 women in our task force. So I just said, as, as others look back on their lives in your generation, they'll look on you and wish they were you because you went and served and you did your duty and you did it well and you accomplished extraordinary things and no one can ever take that away from you and that's still how we largely feel about it.
0: Thank you Congressman, appreciate that. So um, Armin, you can ask your second question. Yeah, thank you for that Congressman. So my second question is on again on the electoral side of things. Mm -hmm. So uh, what do you think about Stephanie Bice's victory over now, former Congresswoman Kendra Horn last November, and how do you think it impacts the future for Oklahoma County Republicans over the next few years?
1: Well, I think it's good. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think it's good because, um, one, uh, Oklahoma is still, uh, largely conservative, uh, in, in social makeup. Um, uh, I mean, you have fiscal conservatives and you have different uh, folks, but, you know, socially Oklahoma is still a, a largely conservative state. Urban areas can have differences on what that means, um, but I, I think uh, in, in the election, I mean, you had thirty six thousand more Republicans turn out in the presidential election. Well, okay, that obviously made a difference in the vote. I think a number of folks assumed uh, because I had overwhelming support in the uh, in the Republican primaries, over eighty percent of the vote, that yeah, okay, you know, he's got this, he's going to be fine, um, but. You know, it, it came down to literally tenths of a percent in the final election. That's our system, that's the way it works. But going forward, I think it does show the importance of turning out your base for each political party. Uh, ideas matter um, and having your voice heard, you, you can't just sit idle and assume uh, that that's the case. You know, you gotta get out and do, uh, do the work and do the hard work. I think in terms of the census and redistricting that it will be very important for a number of reasons. Um, the homogeneity, if I could say that, of, uh, of the fifth district is really urban. It always has been. Uh, you have Oklahoma City and its greater environs that, that make up uh, that district, but yet you have some areas that are just outside of that that would be better served in uh, with the more rural lawmakers. So I think you'll see that happen. I I think you'll see areas of the fifth district that are clearly connected to uh, the state's capital will now be included in the redistricting. And then you will see uh, rural areas uh, that will be aligned with those that deal with rural issues. And regardless of which party that that goes to, I, I think that will serve the constituency well, because those are the issues they care about. Thank you.
0: So um, I'm going to ask my next question
1: now. And uh, it kind of
0: builds off what you said about joining the military and the leadership experience you got during that time. Uh, And the question is, what drove you to really get into a career in politics? And is there, and on top of that, once you were in Congress, is there any single accomplishment in Congress that you're proud of legislatively
1: or working together? Oh, sure. Um, I I think even when I was in the service I mean you you always had a political interest because you never knew where the nation was going to send you and you always listened to what people were saying on the national level because their statements or their um you know their desires on foreign policy you you could literally find yourself the next morning being alerted and sent to a place that you you know you never been or a language you didn't know how to speak or, or whatever. Uh, that's the soldier's lot. So you're, you're always very tuned in uh, to foreign policy. And I think what surprises a lot of people about the military is they imagine, you know, w- we are these knuckle-dragger types that, okay, in case of war, break glass, bring us out. Um, but our, our military is very educated. Uh, they read a lot. Uh, they study hard uh, their profession and their different things, just like uh, anybody else. uh, You would expect uh, a lawyer to know law. You would expect a physician to know medicine. Uh, You would expect any professional to study the journals and look at the case studies and the different things of their work. It's no different in the military. And so your, your typical American military leader is very well versed in American politics and very well versed in American history, is very well versed in foreign policy. Uh, he's largely been to all the places that, you know, are concerns for the national interest of our country because that's that's where they serve. That's where the front lines are or that's where the bases are or whatever it might be. So you always have a political interest. And I never imagined that I would, I mean, sure, you know, you sit around and you think, oh, you know, I wonder if uh, I, would ever do anything like that i mean that that's all of us do that but i, I never really seriously thought oh yeah i'm going to become a congressman someday that it, it had really not been something that i saw um but then the saddam capture and a lot of those events uh, historically it it really did change the trajectory of my life um it it created uh, different uh things where people wanted to hear the story and they wanted to hear different things and And then I was approached politically uh, because of that. Um, And I remember when I first put my toe in, uh, in the state Senate, which was, you know, nothing to to balk at, um, I just thought, you know, I paid the Oklahoma citizenship penalty for the entire time I was in the army. And, you know, I'd be in one state and taxed by two, you know, and, and I was just tired of that. So I wanted a, um, in the Soldiers and Sailors Relief Act uh, that was passed in, in World War II, soldiers weren't taxed uh, if, if they were serving. Uh, and it's kind of a shuffle game anyway. Okay, federal money pays federal soldiers, uh, federal taxes go to pay federal soldiers, whatever it is. And uh, we were looking at, uh, at that as warriors. And I thought, I wonder if I could get the law changed. At that time, you had uh, about a third of the country that did not tax their serving military. So that was, I thought, you know, I'm gonna run and see if I can change that. <laughs> and so I did, I ran, I found myself elected in a, a five way race, uh, was predicted to come in third. Um, I won and, and then the first year I was in office uh, in a bipartisan, very split legislature. Uh, I was able to advance that. Uh, and I got it passed through a Republican-controlled uh, legislature with a Democratic governor, uh, and it was a tax reduction, uh, so not an easy task, um, but it was the right thing to do, and to this day, our, our military that serve in Oklahoma uniform uh, or just you know, serve Oklahoma in uniform, they, they're not taxed on their pay, and so that was an accomplishment that I was proud of, I um, advanced a number of other things on adoption reform uh, when I was at the state level. Uh, three of my five children are adopted. Um, I, I was really kind of struck by uh, some of the things that with our local district attorneys uh, that they were finding fraud in the adoption process and were really, it was tantamount to human trafficking. They were bidding children, you know, uh, unknown to the families. Um, you know, the family would be told, okay, it, you know, the adoption is gonna cost this. And, and if that was higher than what the other family was told then they would abandon that family and go to the highest bidder, it was very criminal activity. So we put together an adoption task force uh, between the, uh, the two houses in the state legislature and we passed some very good laws that, uh, that helped clean up uh, the human trafficking aspect of adoption and, and made, it, uh, made it more streamlined. Uh, so those were some things at the state level that come to mind. Um, and and then, you know, federally, I, I always felt more comfortable on the federal issues because that's where most of my experience militarily had been, global. Um, and I was very comfortable with foreign policy, uh, with national policy, with all of those things, and uh, really enjoyed the work a, a great deal. My time in the Armed Services Committee was very rewarding. Um, a lot of things were accomplished that you know didn't have any uh, legislative fanfare or any of that stuff in terms of um, the showing up of Eastern Europe, uh, working with uh, key uh, Eastern uh, NATO allies, uh, working hand in hand with the defense ministers and others uh, and the foreign ministers on very difficult issues and was able to bring that back. And we turned it into policy and, and got changes that were needed that strengthened the NATO alliance and, and did other things. Um, the, uh, the elimination of uh, the effort to privatize air traffic control against my own party and my own president. Um, I had great concerns um, of the defense aspects of that. The, 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 there, was, there was a lot of information that people didn't realize that was a danger to our national airspace. Uh, not just for the uh, general aviation community, but more importantly, to our military aviation. And they just didn't know it and they didn't see it. So you had all these big lobbies uh, from the airlines and others that were trying to privatize it and put it in the hands of a 13 member board, rather than it it diminished the powers uh, of the executive branch, it diminished the uh, oversight of Congress, and it was just wrong. Uh, So I had a bad habit of reading bills while I was in Congress. And found a lot of bad things in the policy, was able to go case by case and educate enough, uh, worked very well on the other side of the aisle uh, with uh, Matt Cartwright and uh, Jerry Connolly and others. And uh, and then we locked up a good segment uh, of our own caucus on the Republican side. And we were under tremendous pressure from the White House and from leaders and, uh, and others um, to knock it off. Um, but, it was the wrong thing to do if we went that direction. So we did the right thing rather than, um, you know, what would have been uh, convenient and uh, very, very proud of that. Uh, I, I was given a hand, the Handcraft Award uh, for my efforts from the, uh, you know, the uh, Association of uh, Airplane Owners and Pilots and, and others. And uh, it, it, was, it was a great honor uh, to, to know that one guy can rally a, a whole Congress against something and, and stop it. Uh, and, and we did that. And those are you know a couple of things. The foreign policy work, the defense work, uh, the, uh, the aviation work, uh, those, those were a lot of the things that I played in while I was there. Thank you very much. That was definitely our most detailed account
0: out of all the interviews of all the things you actually worked on during your time in service. And it's always very refreshing to hear about someone who served and really focused on getting things done for the people and constituents? Well,
1: I had a, a large uh, amount of legislation that was signed into law. I, I had uh, six different pieces of legislation under two presidents that were signed into law and had over uh, 50 amendments that made it into law. I, I foolishly thought when you went there, you were supposed to do the work. And, and, and so that, you know, but doing, doing the work is not always what people want. Um, doing it with honor and integrity is not always what people want. Uh, You know, political parties uh, can can frame things in certain ways. But my integrity was never on the ballot. And my reputation was never up for sale. And uh, so I always looked at it. If the nation still needs me, I'll serve. And if they don't, I'm going to go home. I'm going to fly and I'm going to live in peace. And that's what I've, I've been doing. I've been enjoying it
0: this plays into my next question which is just a fun little question here and it's how have you stayed involved in the community since leaving the house and what hobbies have you found most fulfilling uh as our viewers might not know you can maybe talk a little bit about your pilot you have a pilot's license so
1: yeah i um i got involved with uh, i always wanted to learn to fly but being nearsighted i became an infantryman instead and uh, but it was always a passion for my youth and uh, Ralph Abraham, uh, uh, my buddy in uh, Congress uh, from Louisiana's fifth district, he, he's the one that gave me the bug. And, and he said, because uh, we were working a lot of aviation issues together. And I thought, you know, to better understand it, I need to put my hands on it. I guess it was just kind of that DNA, uh, that military mindset, you know, go out and, and, and put your hands on it, or, you know, see what it is. Um, so I started to get exposed to it and learn to fly. I, I did an immersion course. While I was still serving in Congress, and uh, I started on a Monday and soloed on a Friday, you know, my tongue was hanging out of my mouth. Uh, and I took uh, six days off. Uh, it was during one of the summer breaks, and uh, went and did that. So I had one of the quickest starts of flying, and one of the world's slowest finishes because, you know, serving in Congress, you just you can't align your time, your schedule, um, weather, plane, instructor—all you know, it's just impossible. But when I got out, I, I had the time. And uh, so I, I finished, I got my ticket and um, I did that. I've got a couple of hundred hours now and I'm uh, enjoying flying, um, which just shows you're never too old to try new things and uh, extend your brain and uh, you know, reach out and, and, and do new things. Uh, so I've enjoyed that. I started a nonprofit uh, in March of uh, this past year called the Redeemed Flying Corps. Uh, one of the things I learned in my aviation uh, work and issues was uh, the uh, aviation shortages in the military were extreme. In general aviation, they were, they were extreme for pilots. So we looked for ways that we could also extend that to missionary flying. Um, you know, there's a handful of missionary organizations that support uh, a lot of different uh, um, denominations and, and churches of missionaries uh, around the world, but they're 30 to 40 percent short in their cockpits. Um, They're older, they're aging out. There's no real recruitment method. Aviation is expensive. So we created a nonprofit called the Redeemed Flying Corps. It's no pun intended, but it's really taken off. And uh, we are good. We've got uh, four students, uh, uh, two have soloed, one's gotten his license uh, just since May. Uh, We have eight total uh, students that we're training now and we're looking to charter and expand uh, what we're doing. with that, and we get donations uh, to help put them in the sky so that they're not burdened. Uh, you know, two two of them that soloed were 17 years old, you know, so we're, we're just trying to get them and get them interested in it, and mm-hmm. it's exciting to see w- what has happened with that, and then I'm, I'm serving uh, as the executive and teaching pastor at uh, First Southern Baptist Church in Oklahoma City, uh, was the church, my home church growing up in, and Uh, I never thought that I would uh, use uh, my ministry credentials vocationally again, I did in college as a youth minister. And so it's a real honor to do that. Uh, The meanest people in church are are nicer than most people in politics. So, you know, it's still pretty good. And I found that, um, you know, the work is very rewarding. I get to tell people uh you know I really have the best job in the, in the world because I get to tell people how to reconcile their lives with mm-hmm. God through Jesus Christ and it's awesome um so that has kept me busy um I still own my rifle company but I don't uh, yeah I meant to
0: ask you about that as well yeah uh,
1: we had the best year ever uh, this last year but um I, I don't do the daily operations with it. I, I'm a passive owner. Uh, one of the things when you're elected, Congress takes your life literally away from you. Um, I you know, had six active contracts still uh, with uh, Premier Speakers Bureau as a national speaker. You know, I, speak, speaking was my main living uh, because of the Saddam capture and leadership uh, and all of that uh, prior to my entry into Congress that all got taken away when I got elected. And the same way with my business, I I had to cut all ties with the operations, the decision making, all of that. Uh, So I learned a lot of what happens to people in Congress, uh, when they get elected. It's not, you know, those emails that go around everybody believes. Uh, And so as I came back out of Congress, there was no need to insert myself back into the operations of it, it was running fine. Uh, And so I still own the company, but I I don't, uh, I, I don't do any of the operations or dealing with it anymore. Um, you know, I, I still keep up with what's going on obviously, but, uh, so all of that has, uh, has kept me busy. I am speaking again, although, uh, uh, the virus has certainly slowed down people's conferencing and meeting and doing different things. Uh, I did go out to uh, San Diego and, um, in November was my last uh, speaking event. And I had one uh, this week; supp- it was supposed to be, but they delayed that because of the virus. And uh, so, it, it, we'll will all, as a nation, get back to normal uh, once people, you know, have the vaccines or take off the take off the masks, uh, Get back to actually seeing each other and relating mm-hmm. to one another. We'll, we'll get back to all that. I'm, I'm yeah. confident.
0: So, another thing that's kind of played in a little bit to your work at your church, but you also mentioned a bit earlier before we started the interview about some of the big issues going on today, a lot of division, yep. a lot of strife between both sides since you've left Congress, culminated in essentially, the, as you saw, people breaking into the Capitol. So my question for you is how can we take politics out of the equation and really use personal faith, which is a connection many people share across parties uh, in your sense yeah. to bring us back together again as a country?
1: Well, I, I tried to provide some warnings about it. Uh, my final year in Congress uh, on the House floor, um, I gave a speech, you know, of uh, if George Washington were here, what counsel would he give us as a nation? Um, I also uh, talked to the meaning of Christmas uh, and uh, looking at the faith of our presidents, uh, you know, all the way up uh, to President Obama and, and different things. Um, so there, we've forgotten how to care for one another as a, as a country. Um, you know, p- political, uh, political conversion is not going to get us there. I mean, it's just, it's just not because the pendulum always swings. And so now what what are we? Eight or nine seat difference uh, in the House, um, 50-50 in the Senate, we're as divided ever historically uh, short of civil war as we ever have been in the Congress. Uh, that's a concern. Uh, we've got uh, one political party uh, that uh, decides, okay, no, we don't have to respect authority and law enforcement and and the institutions. And then the other side, uh, you would think, would be the opposite of that, and they attack the institutions <laughs> over the authority. And you know, so we're, we've really lost our way as a nation. Um, it's dangerous. We could lose it. We we really could. Um, that's what's scary I, I devoted uh, three and a half decades in service to my nation in, in some very hard things and um, I'm hoping that the calmer minds prevail uh, we've forgotten to have how to have conversation um, we imagine um, you know I, I negotiated in some of the toughest environments uh, wartime environments with people literally shilling uh, shelling each other's uh, towns and killing each other and you're sitting there Uh, You know, inhaling their cigarette smoke and and going through all the stuff, uh, trying to, trying to get them to knock it off. And if you can bring parties like that together. Yeah, we, we can do it. Uh, But you can't negotiate from uh, your differences, Uh, you can't negotiate the non negotiables and that's what we're doing right now. We're trying to negotiate the non negotiables on each side of the aisle. And then when we can't negotiate the non-negotiables, we're trying to use brute force. Um, you know, we're we're, we're using uh, character assassination, uh, physical force. Uh, in many cases, um, you know, it, it's just not the way to go. I had somebody tell me early in my political life when there were some differences going on and uh, it got a little heated, and I said, you know, something to the effect, um, you know, we, we need to. You know, we, we need to tone it down. We need to try to learn to listen to each other. And uh, this this one lawmaker, he says, "Well, look, you know, this is a blood sport, and if you can't take it," and I interrupted him and I said, "No, I said I, I said I've lived blood sport. This isn't anything like it." <laughs> and when I said that, he he apologized and he backed off. But it's that mentality. Uh, I've seen the cruelest things that human beings can do to one another and participated in that uh, you know, as part of the nation's sword. And it's horrible. Uh, why would we want to go there? Why would we want to do those things? When I was in Congress, we, we found a way to work across the aisle in a rare group that is only sadly getting smaller, which is the combat veterans of Congress. And Seth Moulton and I, we founded a, a, an organization while we were in Congress. I don't know that if if it's even still operating but it was combat it was just the uh, uh, you know the combat veterans and we knew that we could rally around certain things because of our service to the country and so we worked on a number of issues together uh, in that and uh, we only had what, 97 members at that time uh, in both houses combined had even served a day in uniform. And of that, maybe a third had actually seen battle. So we wanted to focus on those that had seen battle, work within that. And we knew that, okay, these are people that had clearly put the nation ahead of themselves and worked there. And, and it was effective. We, we were able to do uh, some real policy changes uh, to include on the NDAA, uh, the defense authorization and some other stuff. So that was one attempt uh, that I did while we were in Congress. Out of Congress, um, I've locally, I've tried to get people to tone it down. Um, you know, quit looking at people as the enemy and start looking at them as having genuine query. And if you're not comfortable enough to know what you believe to explain it to somebody else, then you probably don't know what you think or what you believe. Mm-hmm. And, and if we're out there on scan, not sensing the needs of others uh caring uh have a love of our country Um, we're not going to solve it we're not going to solve it with brute brute force because what happens is when you have differences and you're not willing to work in the overlapping circles then you isolate from one another and we did that for a long time we're past isolation now Uh, and then you move from isolation and and you move to um you know castigation you know where you where you disparage one another. And then after that, it moves to intimidation. And then when you can't get it by intimidation, then you you do it. Sadly, uh, you see it uh, in the patterns of nations that even uh, results all the way to extermination. Um, and, and so you have to decide, all right, if we're not gonna exterminate each other and we're not going to uh, uh, be hurtful and cruel to one another, then, then at what point do we back it off? At what point do we start putting the circles back together and work within just the ring of the overlap, the space that's, that's in between? Maybe that's all we got, but, but you work it from there. Um, we have to decide where are we gonna do that? And I have to say, um, you know, and I'm at the tail end of the baby boomer generation but I think the quicker we can get my generation out of power, uh, the better. Um, I, I really believe that. Uh, why? Be- because my generation, they, they either went to Woodstock or they went to Vietnam and they've been fighting about it ever since uh, in terms of political division. Um, we've been very self-indulgent. Uh, we've been uh, you know, very self-reliant, uh, thinking that we had it all, uh, we've, uh, we've abandoned commitment, uh, commitment to marriage, commitment to job, commitment to nation, uh, all of those things, very selfish generation. Um, you know, w- we'll never be called the greatest generation, that's for sure. Um, and then I look at my kids uh, that are largely you guys' age or close there too, um, raised five five so you know it's fascinating to watch how they interact in society and um, whereas my generation you know you might ask and say well hey um what are you what are you working on Uh, all this you need any help nope i got it i'm good thanks um whereas i look at my kids generation and say well what are you working on this it's like oh cool can i help sure uh can i invite a friend yeah Next thing you know, you got 15 people working on it. And that's good for our country. Uh, the sharing of ideas, uh, the, uh, but, but there's things we could learn from each other. Um, you know, we, we could show how to complete tasks and get things done in my generation. And then in, in, in the younger generations now that are entering the political base. Uh, and entering uh, key jobs and sectors and employment uh, for our country. Um, they could learn from that leadership. They could learn from that task accomplishment and, and the completion of tasks, not just the idea of task or the idea of, of, uh, of starting new things, but actually finishing them. Um, but then we could learn an awful lot from the younger generation that, hey, you know, um, I, I had one millennial tell me at a town hall, I'll never forget, it, it, it was very insightful. She said, yeah, we're sick of all of you, you know, meaning politicians at large. And, uh, and I said, oh, all right, tell me more. And she says, well, all the bickering, she says, you, you remind us of our divorced parents. <laughs> and I thought, there's some wisdom coming out of that lady's mouth. Um, and, and so I, I think that the younger generation is looking for commitment they're not looking for abandonment, they are looking for things that that will last and have durability. But sadly, we've been so polarized in my generation that we haven't inspired or shown anybody the way to get to it. And so it's leaving people a little bit disillusioned, but we can't go there. Um, We have. uh, I've been all 50 states, Uh, I've been to, I don't know, 60, 70 countries around the world, the United States has amazing people and we have tremendous capacity, uh, untold resources and wealth uh, in our land. Uh, there's nothing that we could not accomplish if, if we could learn how to work together. And we just, we got to do that. So you guys make that happen. And, and <laughs> you forget, forget how we're screwing it up and, and learn from our lessons and, um, and hopefully we can get to that.
0: Thank you. Uh, Armand, do you have any final thoughts or questions? Um, no, no, that was great. I, I, I've, I've really thoroughly enjoyed listening to that. So